When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode, we hear from an English folk musician who is celebrating her 30th career anniversary in 2022. Eliza Carthy, MBE, is my very special guest, an innovator a solo artist, a band member, a singer, a songwriter, a fiddle player. She has an incredible back catalogue and a new album on the way too. Eliza's links to Mr. Weller were how about covering Wildwood in 2000, playing on Paul's Studio 150 album and joining him on stage for BBC4 sessions around the promotion of 22 Dreams. That and so much more on this episode of the podcast, Eliza Carthy. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Dan. My absolute pleasure. Now, look, it's lovely having you on because I know that you're a big Paul Weller fan. There are connections from over the years of covering and playing with him and stuff like that. But more importantly than all that, let's be honest, I wanted to get you on because I just wanted to talk to you about your amazing career. Because what, you know, what are 30 years as an official museum, uh, musician rather, museum, an official musician? <laughs> 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 that was a Freudian slip and a half, mate. That was amazing. I am indeed an incredible museum. <laughs> an incredible musician um but that's that, that's the kind of official thing of it because i'm guessing you were performing as a young kid right because i mean this is proper like family royalty the the first family of british folk music that you guys are described as oh no 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 the copper family are the first family of british oh, okay. folk music. but you couldn't that's, avoid that's, this uh, lifestyle really if you, even if you wanted to could you that is the truth of it surely yes i mean 
mean, you know, I've been asked that question at the beginning of interviews since 1992. And 19-year-old me was used to get very angry about it because I'd be like, oh, I'm a grown-up. I can do whatever I want. But actually, <laughs> I was kidding myself, let's be honest. But <laughs> I want to be a fireman. Well, you're not a man. You can be a fire person, but really, you're not, you're not tall enough. And actually, you're too lazy as well. <laughs> so be a musician and shush. This talent is obviously kind of inbuilt in you, I guess. And we'll talk about all the instruments you can play. And it was, it was some, literally was something you tried to fight against, was it? it was something you kind of went, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. I want to do something else. The problem with growing up in a musical family is that it's hard to rebel unless you're going to be like an accountant or something, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm going to be... Uh, Tory councillor <laughs> that kind of thing but uh, to be honest I, I wanted to be a writer I, you know like I wanted to write books and I wanted to be a poet I had other ideas but really the music did take over in the end because it, it, it was is ingrained in our family I mean we've got over seven generations of musicians on both sides of the family that's you know travellers on my mum's side pipers and fiddle players from Ireland on my dad's side so yeah and and to be honest the stories were too compelling the music was too compelling the the continuation and the lineage and all of that narrative stuff was too compelling and I, I fell in love with it all I didn't do it because it was easy or because there was a ready made stage or any of those kind of things I did it because I loved it Now Martin your dad has played with Paul in recent years um, so there's a Weller connection um, and your yeah. mum there's a there's a connection actually between myself and your mum because wasn't your mum a radio dj back in the 60s yeah she was a she was a disc jockey on uh, radio antilles which is to broadcast out of montserrat she lived in montserrat for four years followed a boyfriend out there and then when she got there she found that the relationship was over but um, her relationship with montserrat or that bit of montserrat anyway which is now sadly under a load of volcanic rock right. Um, right. her relationship with montserrat was just beginning um and obviously they both provided the whole family provided so much music uh, to us all through the years which has been an absolute joy but, but for you picking up the violin was that the first instrument of choice the, the fiddle was that the one that you picked from day one and stuck with or was there other alternatives to start with there were lots of alternatives first instrument that I took up was the piano. I started learning the piano when I was about eight years old and I took that up until the point uh, that I left school in 1992. I, I, I played the piano and I, I weirdly dropped it. I didn't mean to because I loved it. You know, it's that old joke about how you can't take it on the road with you. you know? yeah. <laughs> Mum started to, to sort of make noises about me playing the violin when my grandfather died. My dad's dad died when I was 11 and I inherited his fiddle because it, being London Irish, he had played the fiddle when he was younger. My, now, my grandmother, who I never met, sadly, because she was a wonderful woman by all accounts, but she didn't like the fiddle. And there was that whole... <laughs> Uh, well, there, were, there was that whole sort of upwardly mobile thing, I think, with them of, of sort of, you know, growing out of your roots kind of thing. She, I don't know. They were, intele they were intellectuals and I don't know if she wanted my grandfather to be playing the wind that shakes the barley. I, I, I don't know. But there was something about my grandmother and the fiddle that she didn't like. So it just lived in a cupboard in their house. And when he died, when I was 11, I inherited the fiddle and my mum was like, ooh, a fiddle, Eliza. Ooh, look at that. A fiddle. 
<laughs> Wouldn't you like to play the fiddle? <laughs> I, the thing is, I grew up in a family where, like most of the 80s, my dad was away and the Watersons were a vocal group. So there wasn't, I didn't have any frame of reference for folk music played on instruments really. It was all about singing, you know. So I just didn't get it. And I hated the associated board lessons. I hated all of that stuff. I didn't engage with it really until I met two people. Well, three actually. And uh, the main one was Nancy Kerr, who had been playing since she was four and could, you know, sit and play for a four hour Kaylee and knew hundreds of tunes. And she had purple hair and Doc Martens. And I thought she was cool, you know. So I mean, she was the same age as me and, and she was much, much cleverer and remains much cleverer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, I really looked up to her. I still do, you know. Um, and then around the time that my dad started being around the house more and being less, I don't want to say absent because I didn't feel like he was absent. I mean, he was working and mm. uh, and I was into the romance of, oh, you know, oh, my dad's in Malaysia this week or oh, my dad's in New Zealand or my dad's in Canada. You know, I, I was into all of that. And he always came back with wonderful presents and, and he wrote to me all the time. And I, I loved I love my dad and we were very, very close. We remain very close. You know, we live together now. So it wasn't like, oh, poor me, my, oh God, my, uh, you know, uh, my dad's uh, absent. It wasn't like that. But at the time at which he started playing with Dave Swarbrick again, it was about, about 1987, 1988, around that time. I was 13 and it's that crucial waking up time. You know, when you're 13, you get that, the kind of, the light goes on and you start discovering real passions that are going to see you through to the rest of your life kind of thing. It was around about that time that him and Dave Swarbrick started playing together again. So I started to see the fiddle in the house more. And also he was mentoring a very young Chris Wood at the time. And I adore Chris Wood. I, I you know, I always have. And he was and that the crucial part for this one is like Nancy was a tunes player as far as I was aware and so was Dave Swarbrick I'd never seen him sing apart from you know Crazy Man Michael I'd never seen Swarb sing but what Chris Wood did was he sang with the fiddle and that was the light bulb for me of course he doesn't play the fiddle anymore which is infuriating <laughs> so my, my fiddle hero for my entire childhood doesn't play the fiddle anymore he gave it up and started playing the guitar like a twat oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no longer an inspiration damn it and in terms of Mr Paul Weller when was it that his music became part of your life honestly I'll be I'll be very very honest with you it was when I signed to Warner Brothers and Wildwood was suggested to me as a song a cover. They wanted me to do a cover. Uh, whilst I was aware of you know, Style Council and Jam, things like that, I wasn't, when I was a teenager, aside from aside from a brief obsession with Rage Against the Machine and Red Hot Chili Peppers and things like that, and Queen, I, I largely spent my time with my nose in a book, learning traditional songs. So um, yeah, it wasn't really until, until Wildwood that, that I really went Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, I've been missing something here. And again, when when Paul asked me to be on uh, on his album, when he asked me to be on Studio 150, and I, I went to the studio, I, I sat down and uh, we were all, we were sort of being very polite and very uh, very kind of nervous and like <laughs> kind of thing. And I'd, I'd had some ideas and I suggested them to the producer and the producer was like, no, thank you. We don't need you to sing with Mr. Weller that we love. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want your folky tones all over this. Thank you very much. Just sit down and, and get the fiddle out, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what's happening. I put I put the headphones on, 
and the track started and Paul's voice came into my head uh, like have, with the with these beautiful headphones on and the song started and I was just like bloody hell how have I not been listening to this man for my entire life this is amazing <laughs> absolutely amazing um and that really you know and then uh, so that, that started off loads of things you know working with the Imagine Village with him and uh, you know the, the BBC special that I played on as well and all that and I, you know I, I just I run into him on Jules Holland every now and then and he's always just an absolute delight he comes running over and he plants a big snog on you and goes ah you're doing and it's just he's just so lovely anyway you ask me something specific because I'll gush otherwise <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk wild work because it's interesting because Paul talks about that as being his attempt to writing a traditional folk song so I guess that's why is that why Warner kind of suggested really? yeah yeah I never knew that yeah something that would last for generations and I suppose here we are 30 no. years later and we're still playing and talking about it but you know yes good grief I mean because I don't do covers I know some people some people think that performing traditional music is doing covers mm. and it's it's not like that at all it's a totally different process to just performing someone's work because uh, work with traditional mu- with traditional music is so much more immersive and creative than than people think it is i mean you know some of my dad's most well-known songs for instance you know people don't know that he composed probably 75% of something like famous flower of serving men for instance one of my dad's most well-known songs came from four and a half verses that he found in a book and famous flower of serving men is like eight and a half minutes long <laughs> where do people think all the rest of that came from do you know what I mean it came out of his head similarly with, with a lot of the Watersons songs that have passed down through the generations now and and sort of gone into books for schools and things like that you know they'll say oh let's sing this lovely folk song mole in a hole and I'm like yeah my uncle mike wrote that (laughs) let's let's sing country life yeah my uncle mike wrote the chorus for that (laughs) you know i was recently on a forest school camps thing and they produced the forest school camps book and i was like yeah mike wrote that mike wrote that yeah mike wrote that oh oh my auntie lyle wrote that one (laughs) you know it's very interesting that he that he describes it that way i have to say you know i rarely listen to my own stuff but I adore the production on on that one on the Angels and Cigarettes album and it is such a satisfying song to sing it's a real singer's song it's very very satisfying when you go for those high notes you know that uh, yeah that climbing forever trying thing it's just it's so uh, euphoric it's such a good version as well because I think the drums work so well on that song that kind of drum beat that's throughout the song it sounds very much of the of the time and I'm feeling like massive attack and Porter's head type feel to it in a way it's lovely Um, Absolutely. Well, that's what we were going for, you know. And it was good. that was kind of pre-Dido as well, that album. Unfortunately, Warners didn't really get behind it. And, uh, and it did kind of... Well, kind of missed its day in some ways, but I remain very, very proud of that album, and I'm very glad that, that Wildwood is on there because it it started a journey mm. for me that has ended up in a really lovely friendship. I mean, I don't see him very often, you know, probably see him about once a year. But yes, very pleased and proud to know him. And Angels and Cigarettes really brought that about. Now, Studio 150. So you played on a couple of tracks on that, and one of them being an old folk tune, probably written by a member of your family. Is it uh, Black is the <laughs> Color? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. I mean, I hadn't heard that song before I'd heard it on Paul's album, but I'm guessing it was well known to you, was it? It's very well known, yes. It's um, uh, much covered. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one was Early Morning Rain. I remember at the time. Early Morning Rain. That's the one I couldn't remember the name for. Yeah, or... the Gordon Lightfoot song. And I remember at the time I was going out with somebody who was, her whole family loved folk music. They're really big on the folk music scene. And they, they had like in Blackburn and they, they played in local bands and things like that. They had a party one, one evening and um, all the friends came over and everything. And they were playing some songs, and suddenly they started playing Early Morning Rain. And I was like, hold on, I know this one. This is a Paul Weller song. <laughs> <laughs> I can sing along to this one. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just that was just you, Paul, and Steve Craddock, I think, on that one. Uh, yes, it was. That's right. Yeah, that's the one that I uh, I planned loads of backing vocals on. I'd done this whole I had this whole Dolly Parton sort of three part harmony thing going on, and they were like, "Thank you, no." <laughs> <laughs> I was not. I wasn't Paul doing that, by the way. It was that was the producer. But I yes, no, I did. Uh, I did love it in the end, and, and also, and like I say, who would want to get in the way of that voice? Honestly. Mm. Yeah, it's really lovely and stripped down, isn't it? And, and Black is the Colour, um, there are a couple of performers on there that I haven't seen Paul work with before, but I'm, I'm guessing they were from the, the Amsterdam crew, and I'm not sure if they were in the session with you or you added on afterwards or before, but a guy called Bill Newsinger, who played mandolin, and Stefan Schmid, who played the synthesizer. Do those guys ring any bells to you? No, I, I hadn't. No, I didn't know them at all before, okay. before that recording. No. It must have been around that time I saw you guys in Cranley. The thing I find really interesting about your music is it seems to me every time you create an album, it almost feels... And I I'm a project manager by heart, but it feels like everything you put together is a bit of a project in the sense that it always seems to be a different name with the band. It always seems like, like you you very much immerse yourself in the world for that particular project, from what I can understand. And I think Waterson Carthy maybe was a bit more than just a project, but I saw you guys in Cranley when I was living there. It would have been around that time, I think, because it must it was the same girlfriend I was living with. So but would that be how you approach your work? Is it do you see it as a kind of a specific start and end of a project and see where it takes you. I do, yes. Yeah. And because I see traditional music as a blank canvas in a lot of ways. And while I I like to work with the same people all the time, but that's not always practical because the selfish bloggers, you know, quite often want to have their own careers and things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I, I can't understand it personally, but <laughs> but you know, people like people like John Bowden and the Rat Catchers or Martin Green from Lau, you know, who's who's now doing the most incredible radio and theatre work and stuff in, in addition to being in Lau as well. I can pick it as it turns out. I'm a facilitator in a lot of ways. Mm. I'm not one of those performers that likes to do the same thing over and over over and over and over and I, I think it's probably not served me very well in a lot in, a, in lots of ways because people they'll go oh Eliza Carthy hang on a minute she's rapping in Spanish now what the hell you know? <laughs> and then there are other people who are daft buggers like me that think yeah she's rapping in Spanish now that's really funny and those are the kind of I guess those are the kind of people I want on my team you know but yeah I do especially with the traditional music but also because I do have this separate contemporary music strand which which, which a lot of people don't know about you know, there's, I remember uh, Billy Bragg's producer, Grant Showbiz, at one point going, ha ha, we're going to put you on a record with drums. And I was like, dude, I've got two drummers in my band. What? <laughs> <laughs> I like surprising myself. I like finding new paths. I like, I, I loved, for instance, like I, in the, in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, I went through a huge fan of Outkast, you know, from, from mm. Georgia, the, the hip hop group from Georgia. And when, so when we made the Wayward Band, album Big Machine Neil McCall Ewan McCall's son had had given me this song called Epitaph which is a song about a guy dying from custard poisoning right 
completely random. But we were sitting, we were on the on the set of a movie that we did together. We did um, Tulip Fever, which turned out to be Harvey Weinstein's last movie, and uh, thankfully sank like a stone as a result. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were sitting, we were sitting in Pinewoods. We were sitting in Pinewood Studios in in the office. All we were all in our sackcloths and stuff because uh, Justin, the director, wanted all the musicians to be live on set. So we were all dressed up. I was dressed as a gypsy. I had all these face tattoos and stuff. We were sitting around in the office for hours and hours and hours with Lou Edmonds and um, and Kate St. John. And uh, I was, so we started we started jamming around this song because we were going to do we were going to do it on, on set at some point. And Lou Edmonds was playing my husband. He was doing all this sort of vocalising stuff. And, and I, the song sort of never went away. And then when we were putting the Wayward Band album together, I was listening to So Fresh and So Clean by Outkast. And I was like, hang on a minute, that 16-bar pattern would go really well over Epitaph. And I went to my percussionist. I went to, the, I went to Lawrence Hunt, my percussionist, and I said to him, do you think you could recreate this, uh, this, this sampled beat over this thing? And he looked at me like I was mental and then he went away and he did it. I love finding those kind of connections, you know, singing a 16th century song about a guy dying of custard poisoning with a sampled beat from an outcast record. It was just that, that kind of stuff makes me so happy. You know, I love. I love changing things up every time. It's like, okay, this 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 album. Okay, we're going to do some. We'll, we'll do what you expect. You know, we'll do fiddles and accordions and guitars. Okay, that's fine. But then on the flip side, I'm going to have some fun now. And this is real traditional music, as far as I'm concerned. I'm getting a clog dancer in. They're going to dance hip hop. And this person over here, this person is a punk, and I'm dressed as a dinosaur. And here we go. Kind of thing, you know, <laughs> it's similar to Paul in a way where he's always he's like you. And I guess this is true of many musicians where you're doing it for yourself first and foremost. That's got to be. It's got to yeah. come from. A, the truth within you and then if people like it great if they don't well that's okay too you know absolutely I think Paul's probably made slightly more commercial choices than I have at the end of the day I don't remember hearing a clog on his album I also don't have a signature hairstyle I need to work on a signature hairstyle (laughs) I need all my fans to be going around with with blue quiffs I'm trying to bring the blue quiff back you know now we should talk (laughs) the Imagine Village as well which I know is a project that's lived longer with you than it has with Mr Weller he featured on the first album this would have been 2007 Um, and this was a project led by Simon Emerson from Afro-Celt Sound System. And I'm trying to think how to describe it, really, because it seems to be it's, it's the traditions of of Asian musical with British. But there's all kinds of, I mean, back to what you were talking about, of the sound of it. You've got everything from fiddles to to dub music to, I mean, it's a really interesting project. But you've got this kind of, this world and this tradition all meeting each other. And John Barleycorn was was the song that you did with Paul and your dad, Martin Carthy. And um, this is a song, that, or part of a song, maybe it's the same as you were saying, where there's a few words written down from other 1600s. You've been associated with that song for, for so many years. How did the, it turn into an actual song from all those things back in history? On, on the Imagine Village record, well, uh, the, the starting point for a lot of the Imagine Village stuff early on, and that did change over the course of our four albums. I'm not sure if you're aware that we're actually having a reunion this year. We're getting back okay. together. We're getting the band back together, man. Because <laughs> we closed out the first Folk East Festival exactly 10 years ago. So it's their 10th anniversary and they asked us if we would be interested in reforming for that. And then we spoke to uh, Dave Farrow from uh, from Beautiful Days and he was very, very interested in, in us being at Beautiful Days as well. And we're thinking about getting back together to do an album. But originally, the conversation happened between um, myself and Cy 
and Francis Hilton from uh, from Incognito and from the Afro Celts, and a few different people. Uh, Ian Anderson from Folk Roots was there, and the, the sort of initial conversations were had. I think it was Turner Festival we did it in Denmark, where <laughs> I took Simon Emerson to task. I was like, "Fine, I'll be in your band, but if you cover it in washi synths, I'm out." Kind of. Thing. <laughs> he always brings me back to that. I'm, I'm fond of telling Simon Emerson off, which is just absurd when you think about how great he oh, is. Such a talent, yeah. Such and how gobby I am, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, initially, so when Simon, when Simon and Ian Anderson were talking about it, they went, "Let's get Mark." Martin Carthy's back catalogue and fuck with it and have, um, you know, some, some African musicians, Asian musicians and, you know, people like, for instance, Francis Hilton. I never played on a folk record before, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's uh, incognito, it's a crazy jazz funk experience kind of thing. And uh, all these different people, you know, Andy Gangadine, who'd been on a Spice World tour, but, you know, was also in the Bays, you know, all these very, very disparate, very different people. On the first album, we even had the new wave of, I don't know, sort of alternative folk, if you like, because Tongue were on there. Oh, yeah. And yes, and, and, and then we had, obviously, the uber traditional side of things with the copper family and that recording that we that we used of bob copper talking about the uh, talking about the downs and things like that and it was really uh, they sort of used my dad's songbook as if you like as the template for okay let's see what we can do with these things john barleycorn was associated with the watersons uh, sort of most famously um stevie winwood learned john barleycorn from mike waterson and which became obviously the traffic album john barleycorn must die yeah, I think because it was such an iconic track, obviously it influenced it influenced traffic, it influenced so very many people that uh, it was one of the key pieces of work on the album, which is why Simon offered it to Paul. And uh, and again, yeah, we, we sort of went into the studio and tried various different ways of doing it, and ended up with the with the arrangement we have now, which we do still play. Me and my father play. Essentially, that arrangement, it's a huge arrangement on the album. But yeah, we do it with just guitar and fiddle. And we will be putting it back together again for the new gigs in the summer, which I'm very much looking forward to because I do I do love playing it with the band. And then, of course, it went further when Billy Bragg joined the Imagine Village and he would sing with that. He would sing the John Barleycorn bit with that. And then it would go into England half English. If you watch the, the, the Imagine Village's launch gig at um, Real World Studios, he, he does that there. And obviously Sheila Shandle was in the band back then as well. And uh, and he goes into My Neighbours Are Half English and I'm Half English too, to the same tune, to the John Barleycorn tune. Oh, I should so dig that out. It's, it's, had such a, it's had such a wonderful life. It is one of our oldest songs in terms of traditional music. It is one of the oldest songs that we have. And my my dad is very fond of saying that in, in Russian folklore, you have these characters called Muzik, who are sort of um, ancient men of power, to the idea. And of course, John Barleycorn, it's about beer. But at the same time, my dad always says that he feels that John Barleycorn, in addition to being a beer spirit, is also an ancient man of power, which I always, I always loved his his description of that. So it's not like the absinthe fairy. I think that's kind of a different sort of power. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of Billy Bragg, there's an album that you were on, or two albums, I think, actually, The Mermaid Avenue Project, which I love yes. from Billy Bragg, which was the him taking the lyrics of Woody Guthrie and turning them into just the amazing, amazing music. Two fantastic albums. And, and Billy's been such a big supporter of yours throughout, throughout your entire career, hasn't he? He certainly has. Yes, he gave me my very first band 
tour. I supported him on the road in 1997 because I the, the first gig that we did for I think it was his first gig. But we, you know he does that he does the election night party thing. So I was actually with Billy doing his election night party with the big swing swingometer like, behind him the night that Tony Blair got in. Oh my god, it was so full of hope. <laughs> <laughs> Who was to know uh, what was going to happen there? Treasure the memory, treasure the memory. But yes, but yeah, and when uh, when Red Rice came out, which was my second album, the first one that was nominated for the Mercury, Billy had, well, I think it was one of those end of year wrap up things where the Guardian or Mojo or someone like that goes around and asks everyone what their record of the year is. And, you know, Billy very publicly said that Red Rice was his, was his favourite album of the year and things like that. And yes, he's always been very, very supportive. I've loved, I've loved working with him on the Mercury. Made Avenue project uh, because Nora and Arlo Guthrie are friends of my parents as well. The family connections. He Billy sang with the Watsons back in the eighties. You know, um, yeah, he's, he's just been a been a very very huge and lovely and comforting presence my throughout my adult life. And I, I'm yeah. One of these days, I'll get him and Paul on the same stage together. <laughs> <laughs> relive the Red Wedge days, yeah, yeah. Uh, relive the Red Wedge days, yeah. yeah. Talking about back on stage, you mentioned earlier on this BBC4 session, would have been around the time of Paul's album, 22 Dreams. So a brand new band, um, Steve White yeah. gone, Damon's gone, um, he's bringing in, you know, Pilgrims, there's Steve Craddock's still there, but yeah, brand new, brand new lineup. And performing that album, and you were pregnant at the time. Was it your first child you were pregnant with at the time? It was. Paul was so lovely that day. This is this is this is the thing I was going to tell you. I was wearing a knockoff silk, uh, like cow print uh, wraparound dress, and I was I hadn't announced yet that I was pregnant. But I was about eleven weeks pregnant, and I was already starting to go, you know. And uh, so I was trying like desperate to be to be glamorous and everything. I walk into the studio for a sound check, and again, same deal. He came up to me and he went. <laughs> He came up to me, he threw his arms around me, gave me a massive cuddle and stood back and went, God, you've got a body on you, girl. How's your dad? (laughs) (laughs) It was one of the loveliest things that anyone's ever said to me. It just made me feel completely at ease straight away. It was just, just lovely. Absolutely lovely. The whole gig was amazing. I actually saw a bit of it on YouTube the other day. I didn't, I hadn't known that it was on YouTube, but then uh, I think it was one of the Paul Weller fans pages had shared it, and I found it, and I was like, oh my god! So I stuck it up on my YouTube. It reminds me of the after party. It was just the weirdest thing because it was a, it was an invited audience of, I think they were like competition winners. So it was all Wellerheads in the audience, all mods, and <laughs> all with the haircut, all with the haircut, all Wellens. It was amazing. We did the. Gig and then we went <laughs> we went to the BBC bar afterwards and uh, Phil Jupiter was there and Robbie Coltrane and people like that were all there to see Paul but the other thing that was happening in the BBC bar that night was it was the last night of Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> so Bruce Forsyth was also there with Jodie Kidd who's like 10 feet tall and it was like this combination of glittered up bloody ballroom dancers and mods <laughs> so the mods on one side and Jodie Kidd in a, in a spray on Diamante gown and Bruce Forsyth over there and of course I wasn't drinking because I was pregnant and I was just looking around going this has got to be one of the strangest nights of my life <laughs> I'll put the links on because it was two songs it was um, Where You Go and Wildwood that you played on with Paul yes Wildwood. that's right it was so weird to be playing Wildwood and not singing it as well it just, it just playing must there. have been a bit annoying <laughs> Because you want to be like doing a duet and that, right? Oh, uh, no, it was just uh, what an honour. It was amazing. Before you go, there are a couple of things I should ask you about. One, obviously, being this year, the 30th 
30th anniversary tour. So you've only just announced this recently, this this year being your 30th anniversary as a professional musician. So a new album on the way where it's new recordings of some of your old tracks. You're going out on tour as well later on this year as well with your band. Um, so tell me all about this, this latest project then. Like I said earlier, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. I, I don't like revisiting stuff. My Wayward Band was my first sort of ever foray into revisiting things and actually giving my audience more of an easy time, you know, is allowing people to sing along rather than presenting them with an entirely new set every time I go on stage. You know, okay, let's let the buggers sing along, you know, just uh, whatever. Uh. You know, <laughs> grumpy Yorkshire woman goes fine, and then has a lovely time. You know, <laughs> so but with the thirty, so that the you know, what the Wayward Band was my was my twenty first anniversary project, and and we did that, and it, and we were like, oh, it's fun reimagining stuff, like not just rehashing things, but you know, doing something new. And I thought, okay, all right, thirtieth anniversary, I've got around thirty five albums out there right now so i don't know what to pick i know i'll do a twitter poll yeah so i I found out with restitute that i have a fairly solid core of fans we speak all the time the wonders of social media is that i actually have direct access to my to my fans these days and we can and we can talk so i went okay let's do this and i did a twitter poll i said right tell me what you like and i'll do it and they did and they came back with a load of things that i was expecting but that i'd already just done that I just done with Wayward you know it's like no no dudes come on so we have to go try harder try harder (laughs) try harder yeah exactly and then what emerged was such an interesting collection I mean there's a couple of things on there well there's one thing in particular my father's mansions which I never sang at all but I played I played backup to Billy Bragg on a Pete Seeger compilation called Where Have All the Flowers Gone and I'd accompanied him and I went back and listened to it and went actually that's it's a really good song I mean it's a, it's a great track with Billy singing on it but actually yeah okay all right we'll do that one and then we'll do yeah we'll do this and we'll revisit this and I was amazed at just how many of my Contemporary songs that, that people had chosen as well. They also chose one of Lau's songs. They also chose a song, uh, a song that I'd written about Lau Waterson. That's my auntie. Sorry, noisy blackbird. They come in and they steal. <laughs> I was going to say you just you, just into your aviary. That's a baby blackbird, and the mother comes in and steals the crunchies out of the cat's bowl <laughs> while this little while this little knobhead here sits in the doorway going, "Where's my crunchy? Where's my crunchy?" Yeah, little knobhead there, and then, here she comes. She's figured out how to get two in her beak at the same time. You can hear him, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Wait, no, I did it. That's chicken flavour, you know. You're eating bird. <laughs> She's coming back in. She's giving him that. He's not had enough. Go on. Give it to him. Shut up. Anyway. Yeah, so we've uh, we've actually done not radical reimaginings, but I thought, you know what? I could do one of them show business bollocks thing where I get loads of celebrity special guests or whatever. And I thought, you know what? Actually, I've just been on the road with The Restitution, which is my new band, Post Wayward, that's made up of musicians from, for want of a better expression, all my eras. And so I've got Phil Alexander from the Gift Band, who was also in Salsa Celtica when I was picking around with them, singing back up. So there's, yeah, there's Phil, Phil, Phil Alexander's there. He was in the Neptune Band as well. And then there's Willie Mollison, who's the drummer, who was the drummer in Wayward. And he was also in the, the Angels of Cigarettes, the, the Warner Brothers Band. And then there's Saul Rose, my 
former brother-in-law before him and my sister got divorced, who I've been playing with now for 28 years. And David Delar, who is in the gift band and Wayward. And it's sort of, it's like an overview of people. We've been performing the two albums that sort of came out during lockdown that didn't get the chance to be aired properly. Where through that sound, my secret was made known, which is my latest contemporary album. Not distributed yet, but it's about to be widely available. You can get it on my website. But yeah, through that sound, my secret was made known and Restitute, which I made in order to pay the Wayward Band after they got ripped off. So we, we put the Restitution Band together to do that. And we've been touring and everything and we're tight as a gnat's chuff. And I just thought, you know what? I just want to do it with these guys. I don't want to get anyone else involved. Let's not get the horse guards in, you know. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's not get masked choirs of angels yeah. or whatever. Let's, let's yeah. actually let's actually play the crap out of this. And we did. We got together. We got together in Ben Seals studio up in Fife and we played the crap out of the 15, 16 songs in the compilation. And um, I'm extremely proud of it. It's it's like sometimes I'm making an album's like being reborn, you know. And I uh, I love I love my band, and I love as it turns out my old material. I love I love the chance to remain creative. And so we're you know uh, I'm afraid COVID took us all by the short and curlies at the beginning of the year. And uh, sadly, my mum died. My manager was ill. I was ill. Everyone was ill. So the first kind of five months of the year have been everybody kind of getting back on their feet. Officially, you know, I didn't step on a stage until at least November 1992. So we're kind of stretching the rules a little bit and we will be we'll be continuing the celebrations after Christmas. There'll be a big party gig in London and and all of that. We're touring in November and we'll be touring in the spring as well. The album is called Queen of the Whirl, as in Whirly Whirl. It's coming out as four EPs, each re- representing a different aesthetic or epoch, if you like. And there's four beautiful paintings done by this woman, Tracy Dovey, an incredible artist. She's on Instagram, Tracy Dovey Artist. There'll be a vinyl and a booklet and all that kind of stuff. I've been going through all my old photographs, you know, 30 years of youth and beauty. Well, at least 15 years of youth and beauty now. I'm not sure about the last 15, but there you go. <laughs> all goes downhill once we start having kids. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a beautiful booklet, and there's like various rewards and things like that if you get if you pre-order and sign up and things. So it's very exciting. And I guess it must be really satisfying as well when you put new work into the world to get such amazing reviews. To get you know, obviously you've got your fan base, but still to be you know the magazines, the journalists still loving everything. That, I mean, people talking about your last LP is it the very best yet? Which is similar to Paul Weller. If we talk about Paul Weller as well, you know, he's still releasing albums thirty years into his solo career and getting amazing reviews, getting number ones. It must be really satisfying. People's loving what you're doing, right? It really is, you know. And the thing is, my my illusions of of my younger self, you know, being a pop star and all that kind of stuff, being a pop star with a clog dancer in the band kind of deal. It's, it's like, I don't really think anyone thinks like that anymore. You know, I'm never going to be an influencer. You know, I'm never going to be that kind of a star. I'm not, but it's also not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is is good music. And as my father says, the thing about musicians, real musicians, is it's it's not about shooting your load and then retiring to your fancy pad. It's about continuing to grow and continuing to have a creative conversation with yourself and with the wider world, whoever in the wider world wants to be involved with you, you know. Mm. And as long as you can make a living and take care of your family and do what you love, really, that's all that matters. You know, people might say, oh, what's Paul Paul Weller doing still making records? I know somebody said to me the other day, oh, yeah, I went to see the Rolling Stones when they were still still able to do it, you know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? They're all in their 70s and they're still doing it. 
they're amazing. Obviously, aside from Charlie, rest in peace. Mm. But, you know, I don't get this thing where you can only be a musician if you're young. That's it's absurd. It's nonsense. The best musicians keep going till they drop and improve with age. It's certainly true of people like Johnny Cash, people like the Buena Vista Social Club. You know, nobody saw them when they were in their 20s. You know, I'm yeah. sure they were wonderful. But the most wonderful thing about them was when Ry Cooder found them and, and they were this just incredible bunch of really well-seasoned guys. You know, it's just uh, music. Music's not about the sort of pure shoot, shooting your load and, and leaving for me. I know it is for some people, you know, die young when you're still pretty or that kind of thing the 27 club all that crap uh, some people are interested in that kind of style over substance I suppose but I'm just not I'm very grateful to still have an audience I'm very grateful that people still listen to me and still engage with my story I imagine Paul feels the same you know this has been lovely I've really enjoyed chatting with you I'm looking forward to the live dates looking forward to that new album um, it's always a joy to get some, some new material from you as well and and News of a London date. What's that beginning of next year? Is it February fourth? I think oh, is okay. the. Uh, I think it's uh, Barbican. Oh wow! Yeah. So I'll put that in my calendar. Make sure I'm there for that. Yeah, amazing. Obviously not announced yet, but yes, do yeah. uh, do do keep an eye on the date. I might go down that route of getting some special guests, and you never know. <clears throat> Mr. Weller. Two final questions for you before you go. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? Oh, it's got to be Wildwood. Just personal, you know. I saw him live recently. He's obviously been on tour, back on tour, and he's, that's still in the set list. And it still sounds great. It's just a, just a proper sing-along song. It's a great tune. Yeah. And love your version as well, I have to say. Um, right, final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk to lovely people like yourself who've got these Paul Weller connections and these amazing careers that we can explore and dig into. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret, never getting to interview Mr. Weller. Uh, if it happens off the back of this podcast... What should I ask him? I don't know. Um, <laughs> ask him when I'm going to be on the next record. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a bit jealous when your dad was on the most recent, on True Meanings, wasn't he, recently? A couple of years no. Ago. Yeah, maybe a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Thompson's been on the podcast as well, and Danny played with your dad on that. Lots oh, of I love Danny. On. Danny's lovely. A yeah, what man. a lovely chat. Um, but yeah, you'd like to collaborate with Paul again, would you? Oh, definitely. Any day. Any day of the week. Waiting by the phone. <laughs> Eliza this has been such a joy to chat with you thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it total pleasure thanks very much Dan and, and uh, hello to all your listeners my thanks once again to Eliza Carthy for joining me on the podcast do check out the show notes for a very special playlist and videos of some of the Paul Weller performances that we talked about too you can find out more details about her back catalogue and the upcoming tour and album as well just head to my website paulwellerfanpodcast.com don't forget, if you've enjoyed this, you can buy us a virtual coffee as well. Just head to my website and click on the store button there. Dead easy to do. And don't forget, if you do that, we'll now give you a shout out on the podcast as well. Dave Heathfield. Great work, Dan. Thanks, Dave. Alex McLaughlin. Hi to you once again. Appreciate your support. Mike Vinton. Great podcast. Looking forward to the exhibition. Mike, enjoy it. It's fabulous. Granty, keep up the good work, Dan. Cheers, pal. And David Gordon, keep up the great work. Hope you're tracking all the guests' favourite Weller songs. Mm-hmm. Really should do that, shouldn't I? Thank you so much for your support. Get in touch. And if you fancy buying a virtual coffee, just head to the website. And on the next episode of the podcast, I'll be giving you a shout out as well, just for doing that. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Now, talking of the next episode, I cannot quite believe I'm saying this either. Singer, songwriter, Paul Weller bandmate Steve Pilgrim is my very special guest. On the eve of his new album release produced by Paul Weller, we hear all about his journey to the Weller band 
and beyond another Do Not Miss episode of the podcast. Follow, subscribe wherever you get yours. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.